there's many chances along the way that something can happen to the audio where it's not going to be as good. You'll get drops and dips and kind of fluctuations and stuff in the audio. Even if it was really good quality recording, it's still not going to be as good because of the distance that it has to travel for it to be recorded. Welcome. Thank you guys for being here on today's call. And those of you guys who are listening to this in the future, I hope the world is still sane, but I'm not sure. This is our, I don't know what number it is, but it is our podcast Q&A with a guest expert. And we do these once a month with an industry expert or a professional, someone who can give us some of the answers that we need as podcasters. And today we're going to talk about sound quality. Before I do that, I want to mention really quickly, just briefly why we do these AMAs. And there's really three reasons. The first reason is we hope that you learn something. David's going to drop some knowledge because I have to tell you, I am not the audio person. I am a marketer. I'm a capitalist. I am someone who came into this world because I saw a way that it could help spread messages and make money things like that. But sound has been something that I've looked to other people for in terms of their expertise. And so David's going to drop some knowledge on that. So hopefully you learned something. The second reason we do these is we want you to meet somebody. And so if you're listening to this on the podcast, I would encourage you to come and hang out with us on our Zooms. We have them every two weeks. One is a virtual mixer where we don't really have an agenda or really a topic. It's more of an opportunity to just come and connect and ask your own questions, You know, talk about your own challenges and struggles. And then we have one Q&A with a little more structure and more of a topic. And then the last reason that we have these is hopefully that you leave today feeling a little bit better. Podcasting is such a siloed world. It's kind of one of the few hobbies that you can do by and with yourself. And the challenge with that is you don't get a lot of feedback sometimes, or it can even just feel lonely. So we do these so that you can feel a little bit more connected as well. Now, a little bit about our guest today. The main reason that I had him come on was because David actually hosted a really cool session on Discord a while back. And I got a chance to listen to that. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to have him come and share some of that knowledge here with our community. So David, if you're okay giving a little bit about your background and your experience and how and why you got into the sound world, and we can throw some questions at you. Definitely, for sure. Well, my name is David Seiss. I am the CTO of Costa Media Productions. We do video podcasts, branded video podcasts for larger companies, corporations, that kind of stuff. We also have a membership group and teach people how to podcast, all that kind of stuff. I got into audio about 25 years ago. My brother is actually also in audio and he was editing for dialogue for video games and they needed more people to do it because I was a musician growing up, that kind of stuff. And so I was always in the audio world it just sort of worked out that I was able to step right into doing the editing as well because of my background in music. So for the last 20-ish years, I've been editing nothing but dialogue for AAA video games. So that's kind of where I got my experience using different tools like Isotope and that kind of stuff. We were some of the first people to ever use Isotope back when it first came out, when it was in beta and kind of helped to develop the software, that kind of thing. And I have a big passion for audio in general. It creates a different world when you start listening to the world outside using a microphone versus just your ears. You hear a lot of things that you typically wouldn't. And so that's where my passion has been. And because of that, my partner started a podcast and I helped her do the audio with the podcast because of my background. And we sort of evolved that into what we do today, which is teaching people how to do audio and record their podcast in ways that help to make them sound as professional as possible, as easy as possible. Yeah. I love that, man. Such a cool, cool story. And I love hearing how 
the roundabout ways in which people get into podcasting, yeah. you know, and we made it here. And it's cool that with such a diverse set of backgrounds that we can kind of all build and contribute towards the same kind of community. I'm curious, I want to open this up to the group in a little bit. So you guys feel free to, to either throw your questions in the chat or we'll spend the second part really having a, an open dialogue of it. But in, in your opinion, David, what are the foundations of making a podcast sound professional? Are there pillars? Are there gotta haves? Or like when I think about math or like order of operations, do this first because this is going to make the biggest impact. For sure. For sure. Do you um, think about sound like that at all? Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of one of the keystones to what we help to teach people is it doesn't take a lot of money to up your sound, but it does take a little bit. You have to be willing to invest a little bit in something to do with a microphone. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. We commonly recommend the Samsung Q2U. It's like 60 bucks, super cheap, USB, plug it into your computer, your phone, wherever you want to record. The difference of being able to have a microphone that you can get close to your face, because that's the biggest thing when it comes to getting good quality audio is not being afraid of the microphone. You'll hear a lot of things about dynamic versus condenser microphones when you start doing research and everybody, you know, is always pushing dynamic microphones and you got to have a certain kind of thing. The microphone I'm on right now is a condenser microphone but it's close to my face and I could even get closer. And by getting closer to it, what it does is it raises the volume of my output as far as the mic's concerned versus the sound of my room. The, the background noise becomes quieter the louder my voice gets, if that makes sense. So if I get really close to the mic and I lower the gain, you know, as far as the input goes, I can decrease the sound of my surroundings. So it doesn't take a pristine space to get a good quality sound. It, it just takes getting comfortable with your microphone and learning how to use it. That's a really good point. And man, I always joke about, we both started with the Blue Yeti, which is the famous condenser yeah. mic, right? What I always thought though, was that there was no hope with that because it needed a, a really good room. I'm hearing though, is that there might be a way to work with that. Can I, you I elaborate actually, a little bit more? Like if someone has one of those, you know, the Blue Yetis or they have a condenser and maybe even just reiterate what you said, because I think it was so brilliant, but how do they work with things like that? Yeah, it'd be no different than, in fact, I have one and I use it for demonstration when I'm dealing with people that actually use them. And it's the same thing. You just have to get close to it. A lot of people, they'll put it on because of how the stand works. It's naturally about a foot away from your mouth, even when it's sitting on the edge of the table. And what that does is it allows it to pick up a lot of the room sound. So you can tell if I switch microphones here, I'm going to change to a different one, more sensitive to room sound. And you can tell immediately you'll start to hear the room. And I have the gain kind of boosted on this microphone because it's fairly close. So let me actually lower that a little bit but you can definitely tell that it's picking up more of the room sound. And the reason for that is because of the distance to my mouth. So I'm probably a good 10 inches from the microphone, which is about what you'd be if you're using a Yeti that's just kind of sitting on the table in front of you, where if you get the Yeti and you stick it up on some books so that the mic gets up to mouth level, you're able to increase that or decrease that distance from your mouth to the microphone. It'll really help the sound of the Yeti. I've actually got some pretty good recordings with the Yeti. Great point here. So microphone is huge. Samson Q2U. And if you're on the Zoom here, I believe Matt dropped the link in there. Are there other mics that you also find yourself recommending often? Probably. So for me, the Samson is fantastic because it allows you to grow. So let's say you add a co-host that's local. You can use it as a USB at first. And then you can, if you end up getting an interface because you have two people close by that you need to be able to mic together, it's not wasted money because you can always plug the XLR into the Samson and still be able to use it with an interface. So if you pick up a second one, it's a good way of adding microphones to your collection without having to put out a bunch of money, which as podcasters, that's something to definitely consider. If you're going to be on video, 
The one that I'm on right now is the Earthworks Icon Pro. It's a little more expensive. You can also get the Ethos. But the thing that I like about the Icon is it's not big and obtrusive. Let me move this so everybody can see it. So this is what the Icon looks like. So very, very simple, kind of sleek, a little more modern looking, not this big, gigantic microphone in front of your face. So if you are going to be on camera, that's something to consider is the look of the microphone. Even this other one that I have here, the Sure is a dynamic, which I can show as well. But that's something to definitely consider is the look that you want, because for a lot of people that matters. And there's different mics that you can get that'll satisfy both as far as looking good and sounding good. But even this one, the icon, if I lower the gain on this one as well, I can get closer to it. You're going to start to pick up less and less, and it'll sound a little more radio-y, right? As far as like getting that kind of deeper sort of broadcasty sound, and it's going to pick up less of that room tone. So with any mic, whether it's a condenser or a dynamic, the closer you get, the quieter your background noise. I want to open it up right now to anybody who's here live, just because I think that we'll probably hit certain elements and questions about microphones. I think if you have questions about mics, would love for you guys to either raise your hand, put them in the chat or unmute yourself because it's okay to be specific, yeah. right? Like here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm thinking. So for sure. Anyone yeah. want to jump in? Don't be shy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I was thinking, Hector, back to the Blue Yeti conversation, because I think a lot of people just start with that. Are there settings that you would recommend to like adjust Oh, for sure. To pull out a better sound, even if you're not like right up on it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. W one thing to consider is that the polar pattern of the microphone. And that's one thing with the Blue Yeti is it's a little confusing if you don't know audio and which setting do I want, which there's four different options as far as the polar pattern goes. Even you definitely want to select the cardioid pattern in most cases, which is the one that kind of looks like a heart. David, can you give just some context to what for people who might not know what that means or what that yeah, setting so, is so the polar pattern is the pickup area of the microphone and so if you imagine there's a polar pattern called an omni pattern which if you think omnidirectional right it picks up from all spaces so it's this big round bubble that's around the microphone it's like the magnetic field of the microphone and depending and, on and the so polar you can pattern, sit that in the middle of a room and it's going to pick up everything kind of everything yeah everything around it if you had a microphone where it needed to be picking up everybody from around the yeah. room that would be the instance you would want to use something like that correct yeah but again because of that because it's an omni shape and everybody's kind of sitting let's say you're sitting around a round table if it's a four foot table and the mic's in the middle you're two feet away from the microphone so that means that your gain the amount of pickup that microphone is going to need is a lot greater to be able to pick you up at an audible level so your room sound is going to be picked up like crazy because of how high you have to turn that gain up to get a really good quality recording of your voice. That's one disadvantage of using it in that sense. It's really not that difficult. If you are using the Yeti and you're doing online interviews through Zoom or whatever it may be, I say just put that microphone on a few books and get it up to where it's up at mouth level and try to stay within about a fist of that and set it to the cardioid. And the reason for that is it kind of gives you a double bonus. So the cardioid pattern, not only, again, it's the one that looks like the little heart on the backside of it. It doesn't pick up quite as much of the room noise because of the shape of the pattern, because the little tuck where the heart is, it's null zone. So you can get behind it and the sound that's behind it isn't going to be near as loud as the sound that's in front of the microphone. If you have, let's say, an air conditioner that's running or you live by a street and you're having issues with street sound getting into your microphone, if you point that null zone towards your loudest source, so if you're by a window, put it by the window, face the back of the microphone to the window, it's going to help to get rid of those sounds so they're not picked up as easily if that makes sense. This is good. Great stuff. Yeah. 
I think that's helpful. Another question that I think as a new podcaster a year ago when I was playing with the Blue Yeti, when you're recording, if you are doing these remote interviews, Mm -hmm. Is there a recommended way that you record yourself? Are you like no way with Zoom or do you prefer Squadcast or Riverside or things like that? What's the difference in there and why would someone choose that for sound purposes? Is there Uh, anything? Yeah, definitely. There's advantages and disadvantages to all of them. I think Zoom is great because it's free. You can, I think, record up to 40 minutes without having to pay for anything. And if you're on a budget, you're just starting out, you want to try it out, you're getting your feet wet, you want to make sure it's even something you want to do before you start putting money out. Zoom is great. I always recommend, though, getting off of it as early as possible because of the quality of what Zoom does to the audio. It's a lesser quality as far as the recording goes. It's not going to pick up as much information because basically what happens is we're going from an analog signal that our voices are into a digital signal once it gets processed and into our computer. And with Zoom, you also have to remember is it's getting recorded, like it goes into your computer and out of your computer into the internet, into Zoom servers, and gets recorded at that point. So there's many chances along the way that something can happen to the audio where it's not going to be as good. You'll get drops and dips and kind of fluctuations and stuff in the audio. Even if it was really good quality recording, it's still not going to be as good because of the distance that it has to travel for it to be recorded. So something like Squadcast or Riverside, we like Squadcast a lot. We actually just did an introductory video series for them. But what Squadcast and Riverside do is they record locally, meaning they record to your computer. And then from there, it gets uploaded. So the quality of the audio that you're getting, not only is it a higher bit rate, which means more numbers are involved as far as creating the file, so better quality. It's also recorded on your computer at first and then uploaded. So the chance of getting a loss of audio or a dip or somebody cutting out or anything like that is much, much less compared to what you get out of Zoom. Even with all of that stuff, though, I still record locally. So I'll record to Hindenburg or if you use Audacity because Audacity is free, you can record to Audacity while you're doing your Zoom call or anything like that so that your quality as the host is as good as possible because it's going from your microphone into your computer and that's it. There's no reason to have it go out to the internet and then back into your computer to do your editing because it's all of these places that it's going has the possibility, the potential of damaging the audio. And it's not going to be nearly as good as if you were taking control of it and doing the recording in your computer. Can you talk about the value of editing with two tracks? And I think that with Zoom, that's a big deal. Like if people are going to use Zoom, I would actually make it mandatory that you get separate tracks. I'd love for you to share about that. Yeah. If you don't know, Zoom has a setting inside of it by where your little microphone is. You click on the little carrot and you go into the audio settings. And in the audio settings, you go to where it says record. And in there, I think it's the second or third checkbox. I believe it's the second one where you can select record multiple tracks. Like there are several people in this Zoom right now. When we hit record, all of us are going to be on a different track. So it doesn't take all of the audio and put all of it together. So let's say something happened on my end and there was a loud noise or a car drove by or I cough or something like that while somebody else is speaking, by having it on a separate track, it's very easy for me to go through when I'm doing my editing and just delete that noise. I don't have to deal with trying to get it out of somebody else's speech. To get that noise out of somebody else's speech is very difficult. And so if we're all on separate tracks, it makes it very simple to lower the areas that we don't want. So if somebody's breathing heavy, there's coughing, if there's cars, whatever it may be that you're trying to get rid of a dog bark. I've had people, kids run through the house while we're having a conversation because everybody's recording at home. 
And so it's an easy way of getting all of that background noise out. One thing I like to do when I edit is kind of make everybody sound as though they're in the same space. I can do that by having everybody on separate tracks. I can get rid of the noise on most of the tracks, except for one, whichever one I think has the best room tone. And I leave that room tone in because the room tone actually adds a little bit of, uh, I'd say, life. It's referred to as being a little more wet versus dry. Dry is very stale. So if you're in a recording booth, let's say, and you're recording audio for a dialogue that you're going to be putting out to a commercial or something like that, they want everything as quiet as possible because they put the life in afterwards. All of the street sounds, all of the restaurant noises, all that kind of stuff, it's all added tracks that aren't recorded during the conversation because they want to have control over that. So you record and try and get it as absolutely quiet as possible. It's dry. It's boring. So don't feel like you need to take all of that room sound out because that room sound is what gives it life. I want to take a minute to see if there's any questions out there. Michelle has one. Yeah. Yeah. So my sister and I partnered together on our podcast and we right now have two separate condenser mics and we do it through Riverside because we can't really give USB mics. We can't be in the same room together, but we're planning to upgrade that because we've crossed over 100 episodes and want to be in the same room and have that like energy. I was wondering if you had any advice for what to think about when setting up having two people in the same room. What's the biggest thing? that? So a lot of people feel that mic bleed is an issue. You typically hear of mic bleed when it comes from a Zoom recording or something like that. So if I took my headphones off and I turned my speaker on, when you would speak, the sound would come out of my speakers and back into my microphone. And so when I play those tracks back, it sounds like there's an echo on your end, even though what it is, is the noise coming out of the speakers and going through and you start to get this sort of delayed uh, sound. So it creates an echo, right? Um, When you're sitting in the same room, again, consider the the shape of the microphone. So which microphones are you using right now? Um, They're like on Amazon, the Fifine. Oh, okay. Oh, those are good. Those are, those are good microphone. You'll, you'll probably want to, um, because they're USB and you're going to, if you're going to start recording together, you're going to want to switch over to an XLR microphone. So that way you can plug both into the same system. Everything gets recorded on the same system. So it's a lot easier as far as um, your editing goes, because it's already being recorded together. If you do end up keeping those, there's really nothing wrong with it. You can just record on two different computers and then combine the tracks afterwards. So you'd use either Audacity or Hindenburg or something like that. And both of you hit record with your uh, fine microphones in front of you. And as soon as you're done, you copy one file over to the other computer, and then you're editing on two separate tracks, those two separate files. So there's a way of doing it with what you have for sure. Um, But I believe those are uh, cardioid pattern microphones, most likely the ones that you have, which consider the shape of the microphone. So if I was in a conversation with somebody, I would put the backside of this microphone towards their voice. Does that make sense? So if I'm sitting at a table, And I like putting my microphone instead of talking directly into it, like you see most people doing, they kind of, you know, uh, lounge singer and talk directly into the microphone. So if I turn and I actually blow into this microphone, right, you start to get those plosives. I never have to deal with plosives because I'm not talking directly into my microphone. So by just kind of shifting it a little bit. So if I'm sitting at a table with somebody, I'd actually sit kind of 45 to one or 90 degrees to one another, right? So each rather than sitting across from one another, kind of sit side by side, right? So if you're picturing like a a square table, you'd be sitting on one end and then your your co-host would be sitting on the opposite side. Not not opposite, but um, what's that? Adjacent? I can't. Perpendicular? 
perpendicular would be uh, not perpendicular. It's like a, a 90 degree angle to you, basically, because then what that allows you to do is rather than talk directly into the microphone, you can position your microphone at 45 degrees, which is going to be pointing directly at that other person. Right. So your microphone is facing the back of your co-host microphone. That makes sense? Because that way, that heart shape, remember, this is a heart shape. So big in the front and then tight in the back. The back side is the side that doesn't pick noise up as easily. So point the back of the microphone to that person, to your co-host, if that makes sense. I can do a little drawing, but people couldn't see it. <laughs> that's, that's super helpful. That makes yeah. sense. And it's something I hadn't considered. So thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, most people, what they do when they have a co-host, they'll either sit next to one another or across from one another. And that makes it very difficult with your mic placement because if you're side by side, for this mic to really not pick up as much of that person as possible, I'd have to turn it totally sideways. Where if you're totally across from one another, I'm putting it directly in front of my mouth, but then I'm getting those plosives back, right? So just think 90 degrees to one another and point your microphone towards one another. So good. What about these little add-ons? I remember when I first started, I thought a pop filter was going to change my world and then never have to do another thing of editing again. Yeah. What's necessary? What's not? Can you talk a little bit about some of those add-on things? It depends on your environment. If it's really loud and you have to get close to the microphone, a pop filter may help. I'm going to switch microphones here. All right. This is a dynamic cardioid microphone. So very similar to what most people would be using for their podcast. Now I'm going to take everything off of this. I should have done that before I turned it on. So, so I can still ask for plenty of podcasters and not get any plosives in my microphone because I'm not talking directly into it. And this is just the capsule of the microphone. There's no protection on this whatsoever. Now, if I turn and talk into it and I ask for podcasters again, it's going to pop like crazy because there's no protection. I don't have any kind of filter. There's no screen. All of the microphones kind of create things to help with those plosives. If you're, you know, singing into it or something like that. But for our situation, if we just shift it off center, we don't need any of that stuff. And you can tell it picks me up just fine. I don't need to be talking directly into the thing in order for it to pick me up because my voice radiates out from my mouth. So just by shifting it off to the side a little bit, I never have to deal with plosives. This is so fantastic. And it's partially because I'm so ignorant when it comes to the sound stuff. So David, <laughs> I, I'm so appreciative of you. I want to give a quick moment to see if there's any microphone specific questions here, because I would like to transition a little bit to the setting and the room and how you might be able to do that. I want to give a quick moment to see if there's any microphone specific questions. I'm curious to know your thoughts, David, just because you mentioned the Shure microphone and mm -hmm. it's obviously very popular with podcasting, but I'm yep. curious to know your thoughts on it, especially since it wasn't necessarily one of the ones that you had mentioned. I'm kind of wondering, is it hype? Uh, or are you talking about the SM7B? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the SM7B, to me, it's hype. I think you're using the MV7, it looks like, Matt, which is in the style of the SM7B, but different because of what the internal structure of it looks like. The SM7B is made to be used extremely close, very similar to, I have one on the side over here, uh, an RE20. An RE20 is a microphone that's also very popular in the broadcast world. And what those are made for because of the environment that you're typically in for that kind of thing, you need to be right on top of the microphone because you have four other people in the room, you've got producers talking in the background, you've got all sorts of stuff happening, people walking in and out. So you need to be very close to the microphone. And so those things have stuff built in that kind of help distribute the breath to eliminate stuff like plosives and things like that. Because when you're live, like when you're on the radio, you can't go back in and edit and post. So I have a thing that I like to say, it's called fix it and pre. So rather than fix it and post, which is something you always hear as an audio editor, 
I like to fix it in pre. So it saves me time on the back end. I'm not having to go in and deal with all those other noises. So back to the SM7B became very popular because of Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson actually used a different version of that microphone, not the one that everybody goes out and purchases today. And Michael Jackson, when you consider how loud somebody actually sings versus how loud a lot of people talk when they're having a nice casual conversation with somebody and they're really feeling their feels and all that kind of stuff. Like you get a totally different experience with the microphone. The element reacts differently because the waveforms aren't going into it at the same force as it would if you're a singer up on stage or it's popular to use in front of a bass drum, a kick drum on a drum set because it sounds really good for that type of waveform, I guess you could say. And think about how powerful that would be if you stuck your ear up against a bass drum and that's somebody sitting there playing it. It'd be crazy loud, right? Almost unbearable. And so those are the types of situations where that microphone is commonly used. Not that it's not a great microphone, a great, excellent voice microphone, but typically it's used in situations where it's much louder as far as the input. If you like the sound, this right here, this is an SM57. It's called an AW81S, I believe, the foam filter on it. And if I turn this on, this one has a buzz right now because of where my cord is sitting. But you can tell it sounds very different from the microphone that I was just on. But because of this filter, I can get right in front of the thing. I'm talking directly into it and I can say all the P's I want and it's not going to pick it up because the foam filter kind of blocks it out. If I'm in a very loud environment, something like this would be great because I can turn my gain way down because I'm getting very close to the microphone, but it's not going to pick up all the bad stuff because of this crazy foam filter that's on it. And this combination, this runs, I think it's about 120 maybe 130 for both of them. The microphone's $90, somewhere in there, and then another 30 bucks for the foam cover. But the combination of the two, it's hard to tell the difference between this and the SM7B as far as the profile that the microphone puts off because they use a very, very similar element. This is a Shure also. So the capsule is very, very similar to the SM7B and what the foam filter does to the higher frequencies it kind of makes it sound very, very close. If you back to back them, you'd have a hard time telling which one is which. So there's cheaper ways of getting it. It's just the look. Again, if you're on camera, sometimes that looks important. So that's definitely something to consider. But there are less expensive ways of getting a very, very similar sound to where your audience wouldn't be able to tell the difference at all. Thank you. Welcome. I think Erica had a question about backup recordings. Yes, I do. You mentioned using either Audacity or Hindenburg for mm -hmm. backup. What are your, your thoughts about like GarageBand or something like that in the sense of using that? Yeah, it doesn't make a difference. Whichever software you're comfortable with, use that one. If you can, though, hit record before you start your Zoom. You won't even know that it's on. You'll just have it running in the background. And if you're using something like a vocaster or something like that, as far as your interface goes, then you can actually record and Hindenburg has it built in, but you can do something that's called loopback. So you can actually record a separate track with your guest's audio in that same recording. So while you're recording your voice locally, whatever noise is coming through your computer is going to get recorded as well. So that's an easy way of kind of getting a backup for both. Oh, I've had okay. one situation where we had a guest, we were recording locally, had the guest's audio recording through loopback back into my computer as well had Riverside recording and Riverside did a backup as well. Riverside, for some reason, lost about five minutes of the conversation. So had I not been recording locally, both our host and the guest through loopback, we would have lost that entire portion of the audio. So sometimes it, it can save your bacon. 
for okay. sure. But it's it's very easy to set up once you figure out how to do it. It's super, super simple. If you want, you can send either Hector or Matt a message if you have an issue and they can reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help walk you through it if you want to okay. get it set up. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Fantastic questions on that. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle and Erica. We're at a fork in the road here and we're about a third of the way left. And I'm curious what you think is more important to focus on, at least initially. And that is either room setting or which is kind of like the pre. Mm-hmm. I have an idea of maybe where you're going to go. Or I know there are a lot of things that we might be able to do on the back end in post. You mentioned isotopes and plugins and things like that. So which do you think is probably a more appropriate route for us to take? I'm going to let you guess based off of our conversation thus far. <laughs> so, so I'd imagine that we want to fix as much in pre as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk to yeah. us there. The reason for that is as a podcaster, you're an expert on your topic or whatever it is that you're talking about. You're bringing experts on like that conversation is your zone of genius, not audio editing. Now, some of us, we have a podcast as well. It happens to be what I do for a living. So yes, it is where my zone of genius is. But for most, I'd say probably 99% of the podcasters out there, it's not. The more things you can fix before it gets recorded, the less you're going to have to try and figure out and struggle with or try to ignore because you don't know how to fix it. The less you're going to have to deal with the better product you're going to be delivering to your listeners, which are the reason why you're doing it in the first place, right? So the better quality product that you can provide your listener, the longer people are going to be with you, the more people you're going to attract, all that kind of stuff. So the less work that you have to do and try and figure out in post-production is definitely better. There's small things you can do to your room. Let's say you've got a hard space, hard floors. You can go to Ikea and purchase a rug, a little throw rug for pretty inexpensive. You can put that down on the ground. You can get some large pillows. You'd be amazed what a few very oversized pillows, sort of like you'd use on the back of your bed, you know, for decoration. Throw a few of those in the corners of your room because that's where all the lower frequencies kind of gather because of that angle that's in there. And so corners are terrible for getting bad reflections back into the microphone. And if you just throw some soft, pillows in those areas, it does a ton of stuff as far as your recording space. And again, a big one, get close to the microphone. Don't be afraid of the microphone. You actually have very good mic technique, Hector. I thank you. It's not all for show, I promise. (laughs) You know, I used to think of that whole concept of recording in a closet, silly, and I thought it was just ridiculous. But as I've grown... I'm thinking that it's more of a good idea than I thought it was at the beginning where I would just thought people look ridiculous because, you know, they're literally <laughs> recording in their closet. What do you think about an idea of like that or going into a space that's maybe non-traditional? It depends on the podcast. It definitely helps as far as getting rid of reflections. We have a number of people that like to record in Studio C or their closet. So it's pretty common for people to go and set their stuff up in the middle of their walk-in and sit down and record It's actually pretty popular during the pandemic. I was still doing a lot of editing for video games. So it was all professionally recorded stuff. And because people weren't allowed to go into the studio, they had to find a way to record. So we did all sorts of stuff where it was like helmets with microphones coming off of it. And they'd have to cover up with blankets and all this weird stuff to try and get rid of the room sound because we were putting room sound in after, right? So you wanted that dry kind of signal. So you're going to want a very quiet environment because you're giving very intimate. You want people to have headphones on. So it's almost like in your head kind of when it's that type of podcast or ASMR. Yeah, definitely, Matt. You want to have as quiet of an environment as possible. So for that type of podcast, it works fantastic. There's a show that I like to use when I'm giving a talk on audio and background noise and that kind of stuff. It's called So My Dad Wrote a Porno. But it was three people sitting around a kitchen table 
and they all had a USB condenser microphone and they set it up in front of each one of them had the exact same microphone. It was like a $40 Samson that you can buy them used for 40 bucks. They had over 450 million downloads when they finally stopped the podcast and they did world tours and all sorts of crazy stuff. But the good thing about their setup was that you heard the kitchen. So when I would go in and I would listen to the podcast, it sounded like I was sitting at the table listening to the three of them talk. I was taken into their space where if you're sitting in a closet, it's going to sound like you're sitting in a closet because you're not putting any noise back into it. And you're not taking the time again, doing stuff in post that's going to draw people into your story. So if you're sitting in a closet, it's going to sound dead, which is great for a lot of cases, but for many, it's not so good because it's getting too dry. There's no more life into it. And people have no idea where you are. It's just this, you're just in their head. There was one time that we couldn't record in our house because we had literally jackhammers on the house next to us and gardeners were here and the trash truck came and we're like, this is ridiculous. We need to go down someplace else to record. We live very close to a lake. So we grabbed our portable gear, went down to the water, recorded. We talked about how you could hear the boats in the background and that kind of stuff because of where we were recording. But because I did too good of a job cleaning it up, you couldn't hear any of it. Missed opportunity. Oh, you can probably hear the waves crashing against the thing. Listen real close. Nope, there's nothing there because we took it all out. Missed opportunity for sure. So don't be so afraid to kind of bring your environment into your podcast because it brings your listener closer to you and makes them feel like they're really there with you. And that same token, do you know of podcasts that drop in like a fake environment? Yeah. Is that just another track that you put behind the rest of them? That's like a... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's just an ambiance track. So Um, that is a common thing that people do. Yeah, because I have an audio background, it's easy mm-hmm. for me to do. I don't even think about it. So more for higher budget stuff, you'll mm-hmm. get that sort of thing. If it's a podcast where they're telling a story, I've listened to some where it's almost like Star Trek, but an audio version, right? And so you'll hear people walking through the hallways and that kind of stuff. And it's all fully that's put in afterwards because you're trying to tell a story. You want to create that environment audibly. It's like those old time radio shows. I don't know if you've ever heard those where you'll hear someone's in the kitchen making dinner and you hear pots and pans crashing and that kind of stuff. And it's all somebody sitting there recording noise to kind of create that environment. Again, you're taking people audibly into that space. Um, There was a great one by Studs Terkel. He actually recorded, he's an old author from back in the 70s. And he went out and he recorded a bunch of interviews that he used to write a book called Working America. And it was interviews of the common people, more blue collar workers. So he used that audio to create a book. Somebody later on from like an NPR style show, I can't recall the name of it right now, but they actually created a podcast from it, from all of those old record, from all of those old recordings. And it was amazing because when he was interviewing people in like a taxi cab, you felt, again, like you were in the taxi cab with them listening to the conversation because you could hear the traffic going by. You could hear horns and that kind of stuff. Somebody was a lounge singer. And so he was interviewing the guy in the lounge and you heard the sound of glasses clinking and and him playing the piano and that kind of stuff. You felt taken into that space. And there's a few different ones. I can't think of any off the top of my head as far as creating the background ambiance. It's really common though. And that's one reason why when I edit, I don't totally delete breaths. I don't totally delete any of the background noise because when you do, you'll hear some people mention something called a gate. Oh, I just gate my breaths out or I put a gate on. And what that does is anytime somebody stops talking, it closes the signal. And then as soon as you start talking, it opens it up again. And you'll actually hear background hiss. It sounds like somebody on a CB radio turning the key on and off because that gate is opening when they start talking and then closing when they stop talking. And so you'll hear the difference between the two 
two or three or however many people are that are there talking because those gates open and close or they go through when they're doing their edit and they totally delete out all the empty space. I've seen a lot of people do that where first thing they do, I delete all the empty space because I don't want to have to deal with the noise. Well, you're basically creating this hard chop that becomes a little jarring to you and you don't really notice it, but it definitely affects the flow of the conversation. That was exactly my next question. I'd love for you to expand on how someone, you know, I, I was talking to uh, Rob Greenlee was one of the first guests I had on my show. He at the time was with Libsyn and I know he's moved around a little bit, but mm -hmm. legend in the space. And yeah. he said, you know, because I was doing that, actually, I had my editor, I was like, pull out all the spaces and all the breaths, you yeah. know, he was so, he's such a gentleman. Yes. <laughs> but he was like, you should tr probably try and let your show breathe a little more. And Absolutely. I was like, oh, because when I went back and listened to it, it was like, yeah, it was jarring. I know there's no probably exact formula, but how does someone approach what to take in, what to leave out? Can you give some guidance on that? Leave the stuff that's natural. So breaths are natural. We're all used to hearing them. The difference is we're used to hearing them not quite so loud because again, microphones sort of amplify all the sounds. And so what I typically do when I get to breaths and because I've edited so much, I can see them. I don't have to hear them. I kind of read waveforms the way that a lot of people read books. So when I see a breath, I highlight it and I drop the level by probably about 6 dB, depending on the conversation and how close that person was to their mic and how loud it is. I don't ever fully take them out because as humans, we're used to hearing people breathe. And when you take the breaths out, it gets, like you said, very jarring. You know, it kind of chops it up. There was a show, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that called Gilmore Girls. If you happen to watch Gilmore Girls, the writers- Was it that me. long ago? You're making it me was, feel- It was a long time ago. Hey, you see the gray in my beard? I'm, I'm aging myself too. <laughs> so- but their conversations were very fast paced. They actually had training to speak quicker because the writers were comedians and the more jokes you can tell, the more laughs you get, the better people respond to the show, right? And so they were actually trained to speak very quickly without any pauses between you know, speakers or anything like that because they wanted as many jokes in as possible. Their scripts were about twice as long as a typical show for that length. So most shows are about 40 pages about a page per minute, you could say, and they were double because of the speed that they were trained to speak. But when you listen to that show, for me anyway, and other people that I've talked to feel the same, you almost start to get a headache because you don't have a chance to breathe. You don't have a chance to absorb what was just said. My partner, Tiffany, and I were heading back. We were listening to a podcast while we're driving from a little trip that we had taken. And so we listened to podcasts. And one of the podcasts that we put on, we listened for about five minutes and had to turn it off because they went through and they cut all the breasts. They cut all the ums, they cut all the ahs, all that kind of stuff. And when you do that, it condenses everything. And both of us were kind of starting to get anxious because the speech didn't give us time to absorb what was just said. We had no time to breathe. And when you're talking to people and you're trying to teach them something or you're trying to share a story that, you know, somebody else's story, you're giving somebody else space on your podcast, whatever it is you may be doing, you need to give people the same time that you had during the interview to absorb that information, you need to give that to your listener as well. And so if you take all that stuff and you squish it all together, you're changing the conversation, you're changing the flow, you're changing the natural response that you had to the person because you're trying to clean things up. But it goes back to the life of the story. You're losing life of the story. We've probably got room for one more question before we start to wrap stuff up. I don't want to give that opportunity to you guys. Does anyone have any burning questions left? 
Because y'all know I got tons of questions. So if you don't say anything, I, I can <laughs> You the question, question guy, Hector? <laughs> well, quick note, I used to think that I had all the answers. And my four-year-old oh. son, he now is in that thing. Because I used to tell my mom, I know everything. And then my son is doing it too. <laughs> and I've realized that I'm only 30. I say only, but I'm 31 now. And I realize that I know nothing. And so instead of having all of the answers, I try and provide the best questions. Yeah. I'm a few years older than you, 48. And I definitely feel the older I get, the less I know. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> With that being said, is there any lingering questions out there that uh, we want to throw David's way? He asked my last question. I was going to say, what makes you turn off a podcast? And then you went right into it and told us that oh, it's good. That's a very good question. A lot of people, our students are always asking, how long should my podcast be? I was at a conference and I was listening to Tom Rossi, who's the guy that founded Buzzsprout. He and I were talking and that came up and he said, well, how long can you not be boring? So really, that's kind of a, <laughs> a simple answer to a very common question. A little bit different than what we were talking about, but for sure, how long can you not be? Yeah, there? well, you know, I thought of it from an audio perspective. Yeah. You can probably picture the wave file. And so like mm -hmm. <laughs> what drives you bonkers. And so it sounds like them yeah. not giving enough space for in sure. the episode itself. I was going to yeah. add Hector too, if anyone's listening, that it looks like Isotope has a 50% off sale today. So if anyone needs any extra plugins and those kind of yep. things, Tools um, in, your, in your box, just have them there. Although yeah. they're confusing if you don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> You'll never learn if you don't try, though. It is exactly. very, very helpful. Yeah, there was a conversation that we had on one of our podcasts where a helicopter started flying over during the guests while they were talking. And she said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. I live on a military base and they're running drills. So we had a helicopter going. We started hearing all sorts of crazy noises with no idea what was happening. So for about five minutes of the conversation, we had this constant stuff flying over. And had it not been for Isotope, I wouldn't have been able to save that conversation. So it's definitely a tool worth investing in if you're planning on doing this for a while. <laughs> yeah. David, where can people find out about you, what you're up to, go down deeper into your rabbit hole? Our website, costumemediapro.com. That gives an overview of what we do. We also have a membership group, Mastering the Podcaster Mindset, free sport group or something like that uh, on Facebook. I am also David Seiss, SSG, or Instagram, all those places. If you just look up my name, David, last name is S-A-I-S. -S, you can find me most places. All right. This has been fantastic. Those of y'all who are here, I want to thank you for being here. If you're catching this in the future and the world has not collapsed upon itself, I hope you are having an amazing, amazing day as well. If you guys want to find out when these events are, go to podcastama.com and you can get on the uh, email list and we'll send you all the dates. But other than that, keep publishing. And until next time, well, we'll see you on the next one.